I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm James Goodlatte. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Rogan, MD. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du gynécologue holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Imagine you go to a surgeon. You want to have a procedure done. You say, doctor, I'd like to have this procedure done. And the doctor says, okay, well, let's set you up. We'll get you in the operating room next week on Wednesday morning. Don't eat anything beforehand. Just want you to come in and uh, we'll take care of everything else. They put you under anesthesia. You wake up and then after a couple of weeks, you've healed and you realize that something went wrong. In this particular surgery, you were going to have the labia minora, which are the inner lips of the vulva, removed because they protrude beyond the outside lips, the labia majora. And your surgeon did trim them, but actually trimmed them so far down that there are no more labia minora. And on top of that, the surgeon has removed some of the skin covering your clitoris, the clitoral hood. Now you have no sensation in your clitoris because unbeknownst to the surgeon, there were nerves that run up the dorsal side, the back side of the clitoris, which are intimately approximated to that skin, the clitoral hood. So now you're left without any labia minora, which in some regards, that's what you were hoping for. But you're now also left without sensation to your clitoris. So many things in this story are wrong. The first question is, why would a person have their labia minora removed? Who gave them the impression that that was actually the desirable appearance or whatever of the vulva? Secondly, this individual who went seeking some surgical assistance did not consent to having not just the labia minora removed, but also skin taken off of the top of the clitoris. That wasn't a part of the conversation. But after the surgery is done, it can't be reversed. So there was poor counseling. In fact, there was no consent for the second part of the procedure. The third issue is, how could a surgeon be operating in a space not knowing where the nerves run relevant to the clitoris, leaving this patient without any sensation to a very vital part of your reproductive system, your clitoris? Well, that's exactly what happened to my guest today, Jessica Pinn, when she was 20, 21, I can't remember. And she tells this whole story. And her father is actually a plastic surgeon. Her father doesn't do labiaplasties because he wasn't trained specifically to do it. So whose domain is this labiaplasty thing? And why are we doing so many labiaplasties? What we get into in the conversation is really quite interesting. First off, you might ask, well, what did you expect? You went there to have the surgery done. What are you upset about? Well, she wasn't consented to a part of the surgery. So this gets into the informed consent piece. But in addition, an OBGYN is the one who's probably most experienced operating on the vulva and the skin around the clitoris. Sometimes with a birth, for example, you have to stitch up the skin next to the clitoris. So you're more familiar with looking at the external genitalia of a woman than many other surgeons are. But having said that, perhaps you never learned the innervation or the anatomy around the clitoris because it, of course, is a part of original sin. You know, it's a part of the sort of modesty that women are expected. The third interesting part of the conversation is that 
when we actually consider what is the, quote, ideal appearance of a vulva, that's kind of like saying, what is the perfect type of breast or the perfect hand size or eye color or whatever else? Like, I don't think that there's a consensus on that. And I think many people would think, oh, it's probably driven by porn because all of the women in porn have very, very small labia minora that don't protrude beyond the labia majora. But that's actually also not true, as Jessica brings up in the conversation. So where do these ideals, where does this notion of there's an ideal appearance sufficiently so that a young woman, without knowing any better and without knowing potentially the downsides of having this procedure, which is, again, a part of informed consent, if she had the impression that there was an ideal, she went then and then tried to achieve the ideal. Well, where did that ideal come from? I mean, so there's so many ideas swirling and we get into quite a bit with this conversation. I'm super excited to bring Jessica Pin onto the show. The title of the episode is I Consented to Labiaplasty and Then Things Went Wrong. So we're going to get into that conversation in a second. But first, I want to tell you about our two sponsors. Bioptimizers is sponsoring this episode, making it possible. If you go to magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobgyn, you'll be able to save 10% on magnesium breakthrough, which combines seven distinct types of magnesium. Take two capsules before bed with a tall glass of water. It's going to help calm your nervous system, calm the mind, ease into sleep earlier rather than tossing and turning for two hours, three hours. And then when you wake up in the morning, you're also going to feel more rested, less groggy than taking, let's say, Benadryl or a benzodiazepine or a large dose of CBD. Although sometimes that's actually also helpful, but it's a matter of finding what is the right combination of things that work. So at magbreakthrough.com slash you can try Magnesium Breakthrough. It's one of the things that I keep on my medicine cabinet at all times, especially if my family's visiting or whatever and they have issues with sleep, pop two of those capsules, you're going to feel better in the morning, I promise. And it always ubiquitously works out like that. But if you buy three bottles or more, they're going to throw in Masszymes, P3OM, or even HCL Breakthrough. Those different freebies are going to be unlocked depending on how many bottles you get through this unique link. This is a very, very unique opportunity to try out by optimizers. I really can't recommend them enough. So again, the website is magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobgyn. I really, really believe in what Wade Lightheart has put together at Bioptimizers. So it's a pleasure to have them as a sponsor. The other sponsor of this episode is Organifi. Drew Canoli and his team at Organifi have created one of the most authentically healthy dietary supplement companies that I've ever found. Organifi uses all organic ingredients, non-GMO, glyphosate residue-free. They've taken out all of the obstacles to creating a really, really responsible product, not just for person, but the planet. And one of the products that I really, really love is their vanilla protein powder. It comes in chocolate as well, which is great by itself. I like the vanilla protein after a workout. I combine it with a scoop of Mushy Love, which you can also get at a discount on my online shop at belovedholistics.com. It has 20 grams of protein from a variety of plant sources, including a couple types of seeds and other plants. It has some digestive enzymes added to it, if you've ever tried to go to like GNC or one of these CVS or whatever, and you get a scoop of whey protein, you take that down. A lot of people feel very bloated and they feel like kind of like heavy in the gut. And that's because your body is probably not great at breaking down and absorbing a big old heaping scoop of protein powder. But the addition of these digestive enzymes makes it possible for you to take this post-workout to feel good, to continue working through your day without all the GI issues that come with it. It tastes delicious. It has organic coconut milk in it. It's a flawless product. So if you're working out, whether you're pregnant, postpartum, menopausal, anywhere in between, male or female, this is a great product to have, especially if you're busy like me and you just need to like get some extra nutrition and right after a hard workout. 
you want to try out Organifi, they've got plenty of other products as well. Green juice, red juice, Organifi gold. I've talked about their entire assortment of products. There's too many to name right here. But if you want to try it out, go to Organifi.com slash beloved. You'll save 20% on your purchase. You'll be supporting a good company run by an amazing man, Drew Canoli. You're not going to look back. This is just one of those products you just have around. And it really, really comes handy in a pinch whenever you need to get fuel to your muscles post-workout but perhaps you don't have time to cook an entire meal of healthy spinach and bacon and duck fat you know, with eggs and everything else. So try it out. I know you're going to love it. All right. I am really, really excited to bring Jessica Pinn to the show. Let's not beat around the bush any further. Welcome to the Holistic OB-GYN podcast. Here's my conversation with Miss Jessica Pinn. Jessica, welcome to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. You're in Cape Cod right now. What brought you to Cape Cod? My family goes here every summer. This is it. It sort of like reminds me of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel where they head out to their like summer home or something like that and camp and all that. <laughs> That's right. That's awesome. I just met your dad who's a plastic surgeon and we were kind of teetering into the conversation around what would be considered their lane, staying in their lane. And you would expect a surgeon to know every last aspect of the part of the body that they're operating on. And your story is special because you had a surgeon, probably a very well-trained surgeon, who's doing an operation on a very delicate part of your body. And you're going to tell your story, but they either didn't know what they were doing or they were doing something that was a little cavalier for them. And the crux of this conversation is going to be when a person comes to a doctor, what should the doctor feel compelled to share with them about their experience in doing something? And if they don't know, they don't know. That's okay. But don't start operating based on some presumption of what the patient says they want. So Jessica, welcome. We're going to be talking all sorts of vulva and clitoris. And so if anybody out there doesn't like those words, this is not the episode for you. We're going to be talking about anatomy. Jessica, tell us what happened. I know that you've told your story a number of times, but my audience is going to be very fresh to this. Tell us what happened. So I had a labiaplasty when I was barely 18 years old. And I actually went to an OBGYN who was recommended as the best OBGYN at the hospital where my dad also works. And he completely removed my labia minora and he performed a clitoral hood reduction without my consent. And I lost clitoral sensation. Then after my surgery, other OBGYNs told me that what happened to me couldn't have happened. They told me that my problem was psychological, that I just needed to relax. One OBGYN told me I just needed to fall in love. Alarmingly, one OBGYN told me I looked normal. So I got the idea that OBGYNs really didn't know what was going on. And I taught myself the anatomy. And I figured out that my nerves had been injured. And so I advocate for better anatomy to be taught to OBGYNs and also plastic surgeons. That's a perfect summary. And you were very, very young. You had this impression that something needed to be modified. We'll get into maybe why you had those impressions. But the bottom line being, you went to a doctor. The doctor, in his or her defense, they said, well, this is what you asked for. This is what you wanted. So there's a whole bunch of worms in this can that I'm about to spill out. Because first off, I did see labiaplasties when I was in residency. There was one doctor who did it. And she did it exactly the same way you had described it on Mark Grove's podcast. She would put the labia on traction, and this was labia majora, not the labia minora necessarily, put the labia on traction, draw a line as to where you would expect that sort of 
appropriate border to be based on who knows what. Wait, why was he pulling on the labia majora? Well, let me think. Yes, actually it was. I'm going back to a specific case in my mind. It was the labia minora. You're right. You're absolutely right. I apologize. So the labia minora, for anybody out there listening, the labia majora are kind of like the sort of fatty mounds over the cavernosus muscles that everybody sees in childbirth, the labia minora in the inside. And you're right, it was the labia minora. So she put it on tension, drew a line with like a marker, and then performed the procedure and then got all the bleeding under control or whatever and good to go. She used either a scalpel or she used like a laser. It was like a CO2 laser in order to just slice through the tissue. And as a resident, you don't really get to see people for follow-up, but there was only one doctor in the whole group. I went to Kaiser for residency and everybody presumably was happy with it, but we didn't even get to see what the counseling was like as to, hey, we need to... Presumably. Presumably, yes, because we as residents don't get to see them for follow-up because they were our tendings patient. We just happened to be there to assist with the surgery. So I had seen it, but you, when you describe the whole pulling of it, and you sort of distort the anatomy. And then when it goes back, after you've injected lidocaine or whatever else, it goes back. You don't actually know what the final product is going to look like until they come back to you. And perhaps they're complaining of something, but I never saw them for follow-up in that way. And we only saw maybe 10 of those. But was this a GYN who was specifically trained in plastic surgery, or maybe even knew the anatomy of the clitoris? Based on the fact that I didn't really fully understand the anatomy of the clitoris, I can't say that many other people do as well. Yeah, I doubt that she knew that technique that she used is how they end up removing too much labia minora. That's how accidental complete amputations happen. That's also how they describe doing it on up to date and also in baggish atlas of pelvic anatomy and gynecologic surgery. I tried to get that changed because actually in baggish, in the illustration, it actually looks like they're removing basically all the labia minora. And then they show a real patient and it looks like her labia minora are being completely removed. And it's strange because she has severe hypertrophy. And so when you see a patient like that, you think, gosh, you know, they actually really need a labiaplasty for medical reasons, because you can imagine how you know, labia minora that are extremely large, like we're talking like five centimeters or maybe even bigger, like eight or who knows. Like an extra flap of skin, completely externalized. Yeah. Yeah. The NHS standard, I believe is five centimeters. But at that point, you can imagine maybe they start to cause problems. And so in her case, I can understand doing a labiaplasty, but what's hard to understand is why they remove so much, you know? So this is someone who presumably needed a labiaplasty for medical reasons, and then it looks like completely removed them. And I asked them to please change that part of their textbook, and they didn't, even though they did update the anatomy part of their textbook. Yeah. So when I heard your interview with my friend, Mark Rose, who put us in touch, I actually got out all of my textbooks. (laughs) Okay. And I went looking through them. So let's start with the oldest, which is a neurology textbook. No mention of any clitoral nervous inputs to the clitoris in this very old neurology textbook. So this isn't like something that is just subject to like the contemporary, what we're teaching. We've got too much to teach. Let's leave out the anatomy of the clitoris. This is a super old textbook here. When people really spent far more time in the age of anatomy, you know, dissection wasn't even that long ago when this book was published. So they were interested in every little thing but maybe they missed it. So there's this next book, which is The Abdominal and Pelvic Brain, 
book that Paul Check, a friend of mine, turned me on to. This is a very old book as well. Again, there's no mention of any nervous or venous or blood supply or anything to the clitoris, which is a pretty important part of the body for many women. I'm not going to say everybody cares about their clitoris, but I'd say a lot of people. And then I just pick three. There's plenty of anatomy books, but this is Netter, Frank Netter's book. It's the most reliable route to orgasm for 96% of women. And I think even for the rest, you know, it's so important. And I think women who may not realize how important their clitoris is to their sexual function may just not be self-aware. I absolutely agree. And not to knock the OBGYNs too much, but I don't think a lot of them are very much in touch with their sexual beingness. You know, it's sort of like this procreation thing. You get pregnant, you had sex, I guess, or whatever. We don't really talk much about the actual stimulation that comes from intercourse or from clitoral play. Like it's almost like a taboo subject, even amongst the gynecologists. We don't want to talk about it. I don't know why. Like it's just something that isn't important to talk about. So we're going to get into that. But even Netter, every med student on the planet uses Netter, at least in the United States. Not really much of a discussion. So I got them to update that. Now, which edition of Netter is that? This is an older one, fourth edition. I will say that there are mentions of it in the back, but there's a difference in illustrating it and actually understanding it as a dynamic thing. Let's see, this one was written in 2000. Yes, I have actually been trying to figure out when they added the course of the dorsal nerves in the clitoris because those actually were shown in 2018 when I was going through textbooks, but I don't remember them being shown when I checked back when I was in college. One of my professors in college used Netter for his physics of the heart class, and I do remember checking it, but then later... I did find them in Netter. And so when I was contacting them to update their textbook, I was just telling them, hey, the course that you have shown is not correct. And (laughs) what was happening is some plastic surgeons were relying on that version of Netter. And they were seeing that basically they showed the nerves turning before they get to the top of the clitoral hood. And so they were assuming that there was a safe zone at the top of the clitoral hood where there is no safe zone. That, in my even generic understanding, after having done a little bit of back study, like going back and I don't operate on the clitoris or on the labia. So for me, it's important to know where the nerves and everything else from a childbirth standpoint or from a lot of gynecologic reasons, but I'm not operating there. But if you're operating there, you really should know this, the dorsal side of the clitoris and what we call the clitoris, what's labeled is the glands. It's just the tip of the iceberg. There's all this other tissue that runs down the ischia, along the pubic rami, sort of along that crescent there, and just on the backside of the clitoral body, which you could imagine would be like a miniature penis, for lack of better terms, those dorsal nerves up the backside would be right adjacent to the clitoral hood. Is that correct? Yeah, they're right under the clitoral hood. Yeah, right there. Right there. What's strange is doctors who operate on the clitoral hood, they do not recognize that they're operating basically on the clitoris they'll say that they are nowhere near the nerves, which is not true. They'll say the nerves are very deep. They'll say it's not possible to damage the nerves. So this is the information patients are getting, right? And it's not accurate. So what you have is you have misinformed consent, and then you also have surgeons operating blind. Right. Thinking they know because they're using an old edition of Netter or something like that, but they... (laughs) 
Or even worse, a lot of surgeons, they think that the dorsal nerves of the clitoris arise prior to the clitoris or as they enter the clitoris. And so they think by the time they are in the external part of the clitoris, they have arborized and they are deep beneath the clitoral hood. And that's not accurate. And one patient actually said that her surgeon said damage to the clitoral body was not possible because it curves back into the body. And that was really alarming because you can feel that that's wrong. You know, like anybody with a vulva can just feel their own vulva and tell that it's that's not right. But unfortunately, pretty much all midline sagittal plane illustrations of the clitoris are incorrect. So it shows it like a stump, basically, as opposed to the full extent of the body and the crux. Is that right? So I'm not concerned with the crura or the bulbs because they are very deep. They're internal. They are not at all affected by these external surgeries that surgeons are doing. I'm not concerned with them as far as my advocacy goes, but basically all the midline sagittal plane illustrations are incorrect. So only the clitoral body and glands are in the midline. And what you see is you see, you know, often the clitoral body is truncated or it looks amputated. You far less of the clitoris external than there would be external on a normal woman. Often it looks like female genital mutilation, which I find incredibly disturbing. Recently in December, I viral. It was meant to spread awareness about the need for more representation of diversity and medical textbooks. And I think that's really important. However, that one was especially bad as far as looking exactly like female genital mutilation. I mean, the clitoris was shown amputated. It was shown basically like cut off flat at the level of the skin. It showed no clitoral hood and the clitoris is ended before it goes external. And, you know, doctors were celebrating it and nobody commented on how it was incorrect. And I guess it was a bit culturally tone deaf of me to say, hey, this looks like female genital mutilation because everyone was celebrating the illustrator's advocacy. But he later admitted to doing this on purpose to prevent embarrassment. And so I think that's the origin of all this. And he's from Nigeria. So he grew up in a culture that, as far as women's rights are concerned, is behind our country. And so to us, we all assume that, like, you know, the clitoris is important anatomy and should be covered and all that. You know, like I would have assumed that back in the day when I had surgery. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I think that's sort of probably how this started was that, you know, medical illustrators just were uncomfortable showing the full extent of the clitoris, especially the external part, because that's the part that women get pleasure from. And that's why it's taboo. And so, yeah, that's just an example. And it, I think because doctors are so used to looking at illustrations that are wrong, they didn't notice an illustration that was even more wrong. And it was crazy the links that some doctors went to to defend it. Some said it was off center, even though the urethra and the vagina were right there, which, you know, very clearly indicates it's a mid-sagittal image. One was saying it, the clitoris was a pubic bone. I was just like, what? <laughs> it's very, I mean, oh you can God. just you can see a lot of ignorance demonstrated. Yeah. Okay, so let's structure your experience in a way, because there are a couple of themes here. There's some void that isn't being met, 
in our medical training. Let's put that as in one canister. The second is the lack of informed consent. Somebody saying, I can do this for you, and not really maybe knowing what they're doing. And then the third part is, I think, the resistance that you've met as you've tried to advocate for improvements on anything under the sun, even if it's just advocating for yourself. I know you've been up against a brick wall, even though you have a highly skilled plastic surgeon as a father. So let's start with the generic question that a lot of people are going to ask. And we're going to be weeding in some anatomy here into this. But the generic question that people ask, and this happens a lot, whenever people go to the doctor, they get a surgery, they're not happy with the surgery. Somebody will say something very flippant, and it's because they don't want to actually sit in the pain cave with you and acknowledge that this was a really hard thing to go through. They say, well, what did you expect? What did you expect? Like, what were you hoping for at that ripe age of 17, 18? What were you hoping for? And why were you at the doctor in the first place? What was it that gave you the impression you needed something to be done? Well, first of all, I had no insecurities at all at 17 when I first got online. I just did not know what a clitoris was. So at 17, I didn't know what a clitoris was because I had never been taught in sex ed. So that's the first problem. That's a big, big problem. (laughs) Vulvar anatomy is not getting taught. And actually, one of my followers has a teenage son, and he was not getting taught about the vulva in sex ed. And so she contacted the school and she said, you know, my son needs to be learning about the vulva. What is going on here? And they said that they only cover reproductive anatomy in sex ed. And so that's Uh the fundamental problem is that the vulva, including the clitoris, is not considered reproductive. And so one thing I've tried to do is I've tried to argue that it is reproductive and that denying a reproductive role of the vulva and of the clitoris is a denial of female sexual agency, right? Because women have sex for pleasure. And if you deny the importance of that, you're denying the reasons why women have sex, you know, which is what gets us to reproduce. So I got online to find out what the clitoris was and I was trying to find it. I couldn't find it. And I was like, what the hell? You know, because I was Googling pictures and I was like, I don't think I have one of these. You know what what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) You've got to mirror and you've got Google and you're like, hmm, I don't know. And I was looking at anatomy diagrams. I think one problem is a lot of these anatomy diagrams, they look nothing like a real vulva. A lot of the times... The vagina is like gaping open. And mine wasn't like that. Like I look down, I just have a bunch of wrinkly stuff. And I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I was like kind of shocked because I'd never really paid attention. And then I got down in front of the mirror and I'm like, this is a fucked up situation. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't look anything like it should. Yeah. I didn't really have an idea of what it should look like, but I was just like, this is strange. But I was also just trying to figure it out. And I was like, where is this clitoris thing I've been hearing about? And you know, I ended up on the Wikipedia page for clitoris. And then I ended up on the Wikipedia page for vulva. I think it was on the vulva Wikipedia page where there was a photo of a vulva that looked nothing like mine. And it was just like totally pink and everything was teeny tiny. Like she had almost no labia minora to speak of. And now that I've seen so many vulvas, I realized like her vulva was like way more outside of two or three standard deviations, then, you know, mine was actually much more typical than the one that they had on Wikipedia. But I looked at it and I was like, what, you know, and I was like, is that what other vulvas look like? So, and I had never even heard of the word vulva. So I was just super ignorant at this point. This was like 18, you said 17, 18, or even earlier than that. 17. Okay. Yeah. So on the diagram of the vulva on Wikipedia, it said labia minora and hers were practically non-existent and mine were 
almost an inch long and a little dark and wrinkly. And so I was like, what, you know what I mean? (laughs) So then I Google, I'm trying to find out what other women's labia look like. And, you know, I remember, I think I just Googled labia menorah and I did the image search and just doing that brought up information about labiaplasty. It brought up labiaplasty advertisements, labiaplasty websites. My memory is it even brought up before and after photos. And so I had never heard of labiaplasty. It had never occurred to me that I could be abnormal, that I could be ugly. I had never thought about it. Oh, that's so interesting, Jessica. I hadn't really thought about how this all developed in the beginning. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. And so one thing, you know, people always ask, why are women seeking these surgeries? What's going on? And they come up with the most ridiculous reasons, in my opinion, the ridiculous reasons, like bikini waxing and spin class. And I wish that people would consider, you know, just like if OBGYNs would imagine that they are 17 years old and they don't know anything about vulva and they've never seen anybody's vulva but their own, and they just get online and Google labia minora and just like try Googling labia minora and see what comes up. And I think some things have gotten better because, you know, in more recent years, people have published articles like bulbas come in all different shapes. And so you'll get more of that today than I did back then. But you still get a bunch of information about labiaplasty and how great labiaplasty is and how happy patients are. And so what I saw was I saw doctors saying, that protruding labia minora are hypertrophic. And at 17, when I saw hypertrophy, I mean, that sounds like a name for a disease, right? It means excessive growth. You know, it makes it sound like it's a pathology. And they use it to refer to all labia minora that protrude on Medscape and in some plastic surgery textbooks, they use it to refer to labia minora that show at all. So that's what I saw. So I saw that they're considered unfeminine and embarrassing, that they cause some women to not want to have oral sex because they're ashamed. And, you know, I saw that they're caused by sexual activity, masturbation, excess androgens, and aging. Back then, I didn't know what androgens were. So I Googled androgens and I saw, oh, those are male hormones. Mm -hmm. Women have them too, but those are the virilizing hormones. Yeah. If you have too much androgen as a woman. Now I I understand that women do have them, but but yeah, they say they're caused by excess androgens. There's no evidence for any of those claims. (laughs) There's no evidence that they're caused by sexual activity, masturbation, androgens, or aging. In fact, 10 normative studies have been done since I had my surgery and not one has established a positive correlation between age and labia menor size. So we're just talking about labia minora right now. That's it. We're not talking about the clitoral size or anything. I had never even heard that that was due to hyperandrogens, but I'm glad you did all this research. I mean, that used to be in the ACOG committee opinion. It's very widespread. I mean, they make this claim in multiple medical textbooks on Medscape. I forget where else, but this is what I read when I was Googling and Nowadays, I have no shame about my sexual history or the fact that I masturbate. But back then, you know, as a teenager of course. who had been taught to not be a slut, I was mortified at the idea that I looked like someone who masturbated all the time. Right. And I was like, oh no, people will think I masturbate, which now it's like, of course I do. Like, <laughs> but back then I was mortified. And so that's how I became ashamed. And 
It had nothing to do with porn. In fact, I wish that I had watched porn. And I really think that people who blame porn for the rise in labioplasties are misguided. And they're also doing labioplasty surgeons marketing for them by reinforcing the idea that there is a real beauty standard when, in my opinion, there is not, right? So I don't think there is a real aesthetic preference. Let me interject with something there because I've been noodling this all day. And the reason is that it may have not been the impetus for you going to have, I think most people assume you wanted to look like women in porn. Yes, they do. I don't agree. Yeah, I think that that's probably inaccurate. And as a surgeon, sitting with a woman in stirrups, they're under anesthesia, we're now going to do a labiaplasty. We have to also consider what was it that would prompt a surgeon to operate and to create something from the labia, right? So they have to have some ideal in their head before they start cutting. Otherwise, they're just going haphazardly. So they were trying to get you to look like something in their mind as to what ideal would be. So where did that notion come from? It had to have come from something in the media, pornography or otherwise, for the doctor. Otherwise, what would be guiding their impression that these lips, that the labia minora need to be chopped all the way off? You know what I mean? Well, first of all, I think my doctor did that by accident. I got the idea that I didn't want my labia minora to protrude from the medical literature and surgeons' websites where I saw protruding labia minora getting called hypertrophic. And I read that most women want their labia minora to not stick out. And so I told my surgeon I wanted my labia minora to not stick out. Gotcha. Gotcha. And in the process of trying to make them not stick out, he completely removed them. I don't think that was his intent. I know that I was the last woman that he did a labiaplasty on, which means that he knew that he messed up. He messed up. Yeah. Yeah. But he didn't tell me that and he never admitted to messing up. He just said he was surprised at how, quote unquote, atrophied my labia minora were after my surgery. They did not atrophy. He just cut them off. Yeah. Oh, my Lord. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. What I did while you were speaking is I just typed labiaplasty into Google. Let's just do a blind search here. And the images are all illustrations. None of them are photos, interestingly. They're all illustrations of, well, there's one photo here. But they're basically every variation of labia minora under the sun before, and then there's one after, which is this kind of pink slit down the middle without any protrusion, you know, beyond the uh, labia majora. One thing to recognize is that aesthetic standards demonstrated in medical textbooks and in traditional Western art up until very recently, they do show the labia minora concealed. And I think this is a function of labia minora being considered taboo. So this more about minimizing explicitness than about a real aesthetic preference. You know, it's sort of about modesty. And this is also why you tend to see the labia minora tucked in a lot more in soft porn, like in magazines like Playboy. This is my understanding. But if you actually get online and look at pornographic videos, you see something much different. And so when I first saw porn for the first time, when I was 21, so I did not actually see porn until I was 21. I saw women who looked just like I did before my surgery. And that's when I first realized that I had been misled. Yeah. And so it was porn that made me realize, 
I was totally normal before my surgery. Wow. And that nobody looked like me after my surgery. So also recently, finally, there is a study that backs up what I've been saying for years and years. And it found that 44% of women in the top pornographic videos on the five top porn website. <laughs> There's some, some statisticians hard at work out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess they got on these porn sites and they looked at the videos and they classified the vulvas. There were a couple problems with that study, but what they found is that 44% of the women had labia minora longer than the labia majora and that 36% had labia minora about equal to labia majora. So that's 80% of these top porn videos show what Medscape defines as hypertrophy. Wow. So what they found is, you know, they found about the same numbers as were found by this gynodiversity project, which is very, very helpful. I don't know if any OBGYNs listen to this podcast, but if they do, if any patients are insecure, referring them to the gynodiversity project will help them a ton. Because what it does is it breaks down all the types of vulvas that are out there. It goes over all of the colors that vulvas come in, just all the different shapes and everything. And it breaks it down. It says like this percentage of women are like this and this like that. And that was the information that I was looking for at 17 and never found. So this study of women in porn found about the same numbers, except actually the study of women in porn found that the women had even larger labia minora. And I think this can be explained by the fact that when women are aroused, their labia minora swell with blood and that could make them stick out more. And I have actually seen some women comments on like my TikToks and Instagram posts. Some women, they have quote unquote innies, like normally. And then when they're aroused, then they have an Audi. So, you know, some women are kind of like in between innies and Audis, you know? It's like they're a grower, not a shower kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because there has been this discussion, like, are you an any and are you an Audi? And so it's really funny when you see the women who are like, I am both, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's funny. Wow. That is really interesting. Yeah. I'm still stuck on the fact that somebody did all this research on Pornhub looking at labia minora. I mean, that's really pretty fascinating. And I did just look up the Gynodiversity Project. I'm going to buy their book because it's basically a collection of selfies of the vulva. So this particular study looked at five different porn sites, which I'm sure included Pornhub. But just speaking of Pornhub, I guess in 2019, Pornhub users voted on the nicest pussy and they voted on a woman named Elsa Jean, who has very large labia minora. So her labia minora are bigger than most labia minora you will find on, say, Dr. Gary Alter's website. He's a specialist in labiaplasty. And most of his patients before labiaplasty have smaller labia minora than she does. This is the vulva that men voted was the nicest. So this is why I think that the aesthetic standard being pushed, it's not representative of men's preferences. And I try to emphasize this a lot because I think that blaming men doesn't make sense. Blaming porn doesn't make sense. And when you do that, you actually reinforce this idea that there is a real beauty standard, right? Right. That there is a real preference. And I don't think that there is now. 
some men do have preferences. Like some men prefer innies and they don't like outies. And some men prefer outies and they don't like innies. So there was actually a woman on my TikToks who was getting upset. She started ranting and she said, Somebody ranting on TikTok? No. (laughs) She was upset because she was like, no, no. Men make fun of anys. Men make fun of women who only have a line. And I'm like, really? And she's like, they call it no clit something. I forget. She was saying that they had like derogatory names for women who didn't have anything showing. And I was like, this is a new one. (laughs) She was upset because she thought I had it all wrong. She's like, you're wrong. Actually, nobody's ever preferred innies. And, and I'm like, this is a new story. But here's a woman who has felt shamed for not having anything showing. And I think that the common theme here is not so much that there is a real preference, because I think men like all different types, but rather that this is an extremely sensitive area for women. And it's an area where a lot of women we don't know what's going on. And so we're super, super vulnerable to any kind of criticism. And I think it's such an intimate thing that it's like, it's a way to hurt us. If anybody wants to hurt a woman's feelings, they can talk shit about her vulva. One time I was talking to a misogynist on Twitter, which was a mistake. Cause like, I don't need to be, you know, getting myself riled up. But <laughs> Misogyny on Twitter. I mean, I keep coming up with these like t-shirt ideas. Yeah. This guy was frightening because he has like 77,000 followers and a lot of them are tech CEOs and venture capitalists and he's a deal fellow. So this is why I was like, I saw him and I was like, what is going on with this man? He, <laughs> he referred to women as roasties. And I said, hi, I'm not sure if you're aware, but this term hurts a lot of women's feelings and there's nothing wrong with Lady Menor that look like roast beef. And he said, well, I'm just trying to shame promiscuous women. Anyway, I just didn't really get into like how obviously like slut shaming is wrong. And instead I said, well, did you know that there's actually no correlation between labia minora looking like roast beef and promiscuity, right? That's not actually a sign of promiscuity. This is just a function of genetics and hormones. And he said, yeah, but it makes women feel bad. And I'm like, well, that literally is the goal. Yeah, I just want you to feel inferior. And anyway, I'll just grab it, even the low-hanging fruit. I asked him, I said, do you actually have a problem with labia menorah that look like that? Like at one point he said, I have no problem with labia menorah looking like roast beef or sticking out or anything like that. That's not what this is about. I'm just trying to make promiscuous women feel bad. And I'm like, this is fucked. Yeah. But like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that sometimes like women need to realize like sometimes when people say derogatory things, they're just trying to be mean. Yeah. Like that's all. Yeah. Like it doesn't even necessarily mean that they have a problem with it. Like what people do is they look for areas where people are vulnerable. Like if you want to hurt someone, you look for where they're vulnerable and you hit that thing. Right. And so I think that's why I think this is an area where women are vulnerable. And that's why you see derogatory language about it. And another thing that I've tried to raise awareness about on TikTok, and the video I made was really popular and I didn't realize it. (laughs) My TikTok gets ridiculous. Sometimes I just start talking and then it just like something will go viral. And I'm like, well, that was surprising. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I've seen some of your videos. I'm like, oh, wow. Jessica has this, whoa, like a lot of hits on this video. And it's, 
not what I would have expected from a million hits or something like that. Yeah, that's me neither. And then sometimes I like put effort in and it's not popular. So I just sort of whatever. Anyway, with this one video, I was trying to say that it's not always bad if men call labia minora roast beef or Arby's or anything like that. Like it's not necessarily an insult or it's not necessarily meant as an insult. And someone will argue it's always derogatory and they just shouldn't say it. And that may be right. You know, that it may be ideal if men would just stop using that sort of language. However, I do think it's important to recognize intent before you decide to get upset and interpret the meaning of something, right? So, you know, like if you get on Reddit, the top pussy pick on Reddit is a very meaty Audi. And in the comments, you see a lot of references to beef and burgers and meat and Arby's, but it's all complimentary. And this literally has the most, or at least last I checked, this was the Volvo with the most likes. This is sort of like the Elsa Jean or whatever you had said of Reddit. Here, This is the picture we like the most. Yeah. I'm not saying that innies are bad because there are obviously, you know, photos of innies that are very popular as well. Sometimes I think maybe Audis are more polarizing. Right. I mean, probably because, again, if even if a layperson types in a picture on Google, I don't do pelvic surgery anymore. But if I were going to do this, I would want to know the anatomy. Well, you go to Google and you're seeing this sort of innie picture. You're seeing this is what your job as a surgeon, your job is to create this. And so you then put your tools into play to make that happen. So even a layperson going on and looking at images online, you're going to see that, oh, maybe there is an ideal. Like there's a lot of cognitive dissonance there where no matter what you actually feel or what your experience is, oh, there's actually a normal, quote, normal or whatever. And it's neither common nor normal from what you're saying. I mean, innies are normal and common as well. Like according to the Gynodiversity Project, 27% of women have vulvas that are complete innies with nothing showing at all. And then I forget how many, but there's some odd percentage of women who have just labia minora that stick out the bottom. And so they can kind of look like innies. But then if you look closer, it's like they're almost innies, you know? And then anyway, so the Gynodiversity Project really breaks it down. But so it is fairly common, but it's also common to have labia minora that stick out and there's nothing wrong with it. So when I was 17, after I looked online, I got the impression that the vast majority of women had labia minora that didn't show at all. And that that's what I was quote unquote supposed to look like. And I just think it's important that women understand that that's not the case and that there's nothing wrong with labia minor that stick out. And also what I was saying before is that, so in the video that was very popular, I said, men are gross. They're just going to say gross things, <laughs> you know, like, you know, just, but I said, they will eat the beef. Don't worry about it. I remember seeing that video, Jessica, and I was like, oh man, I have to interview her. And like, I, we had already set up a time and I was like, I bet this is going to come up. And here we are talking about Arby's and roast beef. I was like, I, it was, yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> so many girls say that that is what makes them feel insecure. And I know that when I was 17 and I saw that reference, when I saw roast beef, I was like, ew, how can they be calling like my vulva roast beef? You know, but it's actually like, if you take a step back and you really think about it and you think about like dudes, like, they're not going to say that they look like butterfly wings and flowers because they are men. Neanderthals over here trying to create bad metaphors. <laughs> I want to qualify something real quick that I said. 
that is, of course, through the Gynodiversity Project and through your work and whatnot, I think everybody needs to take a step back and realize that however your vulva looks, there's very, very few medical reasons to alter it. There's going to be somebody out there, a large portion of people likely, who appreciate the way that your vulva naturally looks. So when I use the word normal, it's normal to have really, really painful periods. It's just a part of being a woman. Well, it might be common, but it's not necessarily normal. In other words, there might be something there to fix. I just want to put my flag in the ground. I don't think that there's anything to be fixed about a vulva that is shaped a little bit differently than the first image that pops up online or even the most popular image on Reddit or whatever else. I think that we need to get away from that. And I do think men are feeding into this hypocrisy of wanting to be validated for who they are over their small penis or whatever else, yet they're willing to use language like roast beef and Arby's. Like, I do think that there's good reason for us to be like, can you guys fucking stop it? Like, don't care what your intention is. It's just not nice to talk about a person's body. They can't change it unless they go to a surgeon who then potentially messes them up and they now no longer have clitoral sensation. Yeah. I also think the way that there's so much variance in vulvar morphology means that I guess like sexual selection didn't really act strongly on it. Like there hasn't been a lot of pressure on vulvar aesthetics because it hasn't really mattered or because there is this diversity and preferences. There was this one study that looked at what men liked and disliked about vulvas. And one of the things that men said they liked is just the variety. Like, (laughs) I mean, I think that's like, it's nice that they're unique, right? It can be nice that whatever your vulva looks like, it's unique. It may not look like another vulva exactly, right? And there's actually something special about that. But yeah, one thing that I wanted to mention is in a recent study in the Journal of Sexual Medicine, a plastic surgeon found that physical complaints were not correlated with objective labia minor size. So what are some of those physical complaints that they were looking at? I was actually going to ask you this next. So this is a nice segue. Well, I guess women will complain about their labia minora bothering them in sports, in tight pants, bike riding. Kind of just like a chafing process, for lack of better terms. I guess so. I have tried to understand this. I'm not entirely clear on how this works. I never had symptoms. However, I did tell my doctor that I had pain when I rode my bike. And that was one thing that made it very hard for me to stand up for myself later. And that was one thing that caused me to blame myself for a very long time because I did not have pain when I rode my bike. I just said that because it seemed like no one would listen to me. And like, I had to say that I had a reason, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is something that teenagers might just be desperate to have surgery and might be saying stuff. And also, if the problem is just uncomfortable in certain types of underwear or certain types of pants or bike seats, then, you know, those underwear can change. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I can't put your clitoris back together. I could have gotten a new bike seat. You know, they have bike seats that are specifically made for women. They're shaped, they have like a little dent or whatever. And that was never suggested. So in this study, they found that the most common physical complaint was complaints of pain during sex or discomfort during sex, right? And so the fact that the most common physical complaints are sexual complaints sets off some alarm bells, right? For me, especially given that he found that physical complaints were not correlated with labia minor size, right? And it is 
very difficult to try and say that labium in our sides is causing those complaints when there's not even a correlation. Yeah, exactly. Especially if it's going to lead to surgery, similar to like with endometriosis, you're going to get all of your uterus taken out and now you're going to have pelvic pain. Well, turns out a great number of women still have pelvic pain. We've done the surgery, but is that surgery actually going to provide you with the relief? The same goes for this study. Fortunately, they're actually looking up. They can actually measure the size of the labia. I think that's an important consideration. Yeah, so the lack of correlation indicates that at least most of the time, women are complaining about their labium nor causing them problems. It is very unlikely to be a function of the size. So more likely, it is something else. And given that they're mostly sexual complaints, I think that it may be an arousal problem. And I actually talked to a woman who contacted me asking for a recommendation for a safe surgeon, because sometimes women do that. And I will try to help women who I think, you know, have a legitimate reason for wanting surgery. So I personally am against cosmetic labiaplasty, given the lack of training standards and given the way that misinformation is used to promote these surgeries. But I obviously don't want anyone to suffer. So yeah, and I don't yeah. want anyone to get harmed. But with this woman, I was just sort of asking her what symptoms she had. And I asked her, I said, do you have this problem when you're aroused? And she said, no. And then she said it was unreasonable to expect her to be aroused every time she has sex. Oh, my God. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) I'm sort of speechless. Sorry, I'm going to collect myself here, Jessica. You carry on. I think that there's really something there. Like there's this idea that women should just be ready to be penetrated right away when that's not how it works. And I've talked to guys and a lot of guys really intuitively understand that the way to get a woman ready for penetration is to stimulate her vulva. And TMI is always a little trickier for me because of my whole situation. And what it means is that, you know, like this one guy did, he said, I can't use my go-to moves with you. And it's really hard. And it's like, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> like he has go-to moves. The old flint flicker or something, you know, that he's going to use is, yeah, I get, yeah, I get you. <laughs> well, I think it's very intuitive. And when I think about my sexual experiences back before I had surgery, I don't know what other people's early sexual experiences were like, but I feel like it was very intuitive to just rub on the outside, right? That- that's what we did. Like dry humping was like game changing when you met somebody that you wanted to be, you know, explore with, but you weren't ready to have sex. It was just like, we're going to get the juices flowing. Like that is the process that's lacking. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really sad that I had that experience. And I thought that that was like just foreplay and not the real deal. And, and I thought, you know, someday when I had penetrative sex, like fireworks were going to go off. Yeah. There was something magical up my vagina somewhere. I couldn't find it. You know what I mean? That only a penis could reach. And this A magic wand, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really sad as I lost sensation in my surgery. And that is what caused me to decide to have sex. Because I thought this is how I will solve the problem of the fact that I no longer have fun with these activities anymore. Yeah. And then that didn't really work out. And then I was like, this boy is clearly incompetent moving on. 
Yeah. Yeah. The way, like I was in so much denial. Yeah. I mean, it's funny and it's sad. And you were like still like 19, 20 years old, right? You were super young. I was 18 at that point. Oh, okay. But what's sad is I actually, I found a Reddit comment from a 16 year old. She's going through the same thing. Like, cause she said she lost clitoral sensation. She can no longer orgasm from external stimulation, but she assumes she'll still be able to orgasm from penetration. The vast majority of women, as far as the last time I looked, requires direct clitoral stimulation in order to orgasm. Why don't we get into that topic? Because there's also some important reasons to have the clitoris still operational and orgasms, you know, possible, but it isn't just the clitoris. But let's pause there for a second, because did you say that that young woman was 16? Yeah. So the other thing is about a third of the women who have contacted me who have been harmed, they were minors at the time of their surgery. So sometimes I think minors are the most vulnerable and most likely to get operated on by surgeons who haven't been trained. Because I think more adult women seeking labioplasty are probably more careful and more, you know, they know their bodies better. They know I don't know, keep themselves safe a little bit better. Well, they're adults. Yeah. And also there's this doctor, Dr. Michael Goodman, who he first wrote an article, I think back in 2010 or 2011, saying that the field of female genital cosmetic surgery was the wild, wild west. And he was the first doctor who tried to say, hey, they're doing surgeries they're not trained to do on anatomy they don't know. And this is a problem and something needs to be done to get surgeons trained because they're hurting people, right? And he says that the most common scenario he sees where women have been harmed are when they get operated on by a general OBGYN for quote-unquote medical reasons. So that is the highest risk scenario. And I think that that's the one that underage women are most often in. Yeah. Let's pause because there's a committee opinion from ACOG about this specifically, exactly what you're talking about. And it's talking about breast and labial surgery in adolescence. This is the one I think you were referring to before. And there is a big paragraph here that's important. Surgical correction labiaplasty in girls younger than 18 years should be considered only in those with significant congenital malformation or persistent symptoms that the physician believes are caused directly by labial anatomy or both. Physicians should be aware that surgical alteration of the labia that is not necessary to the health of the adolescent who is younger than 18 age is a violation of federal criminal law. Yeah, I mean, that's what they say. But the reality is, you know, there was one girl who was 12 and her surgeon suggested it. Oh, I'm not defending ACOG here at all. I'm not saying, hey, how could this be happening? I'm saying this is happening and there isn't a lot of informed consent or a process taking place here that would warrant so many women going through this procedure. Yeah. Also, ACOG is very much leaving it up to the discretion of the provider. There's a lot of flexibility there. Someone like me coming in now, my doctor, he actually did wait until I turned 18 because he didn't want to get sued. You know what I mean? And I definitely would have sued the fuck out of him if he, or I would have. And he wasn't a plastic surgeon. He was an OBGYN, right? Yeah. So like if I had surgery just a few days prior then I think I would have, you know, because of female genital mutilation laws, I would have had a lot longer to try and do something. Yeah. I mean, when I have talked to women who were operated on super young, they were not told risks. They were not aware of their bodies. 
they, in retrospect, don't really think that they needed surgery. You know, it was more just like, maybe they complain, but they don't really understand. Like I said, like if somebody has discomfort in pants, you can change the pants. Right. Bike seat, whatever. If some 15 year old is like, my labia menorah are uncomfortable. It's like, there's some other things that can be done. I definitely talked to one woman who said she wishes someone had bought another bike seat. And also I've seen girls on TikTok who haven't had surgery who said, you know, my OBGYN helped me pick more comfortable underwear. And I think that that's the sort of thing that should be happening. There is one very, I don't know if you've seen that woman, Gabby, she has an underwear line made especially for, I guess, like, oh my God, I haven't seen this. (laughs) Can you send me a link to that later? Because maybe we'll reach out to her and see if she wants to. uh... She is super popular. And she made one video where she explained the difference between an innie and an outie. And she's like, and I think what I have. I don't know. I don't spend enough time on TikTok, on woke TikTok. Yeah. (laughs) But she has a whole product line. It is amazing that there's a more of a grassroots effort for us to have some justice within the system through the lens of this lack of informed consent, which is a topic I definitely want to touch on because when a person comes to you for surgery, they may demand surgery and use the surgeon and say, no, I don't think that's the right thing to do. I'm happy to refer you out. When a person does come and say, I want to do this thing, it's your job to provide risks, benefits, alternatives, and to really understand the surgery that you're proposing that you do. And a lot of that is being lost. It's lost with C-section, everything up from C-section to circumcision to obviously labiaplasty. So my doctor didn't talk to me about risks at all. All he said was, you know, all surgery carries risks. That's all he said. Wow. And my consent form was a fill in the blank consent form that said excision of redundant labia. And it was fill in the blank. So it was not specific to the surgery I was having. So all surgery carries risk was sort of just this blanket statement that meant practically nothing. I actually did a lot to try and figure out if there were any risks. So I did look at outcome studies published at the time. I did try and find out if the labia minora played any role in sexual function. I pinched them and was like, this is not a reliable way to test sensitivity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just pinched them. I'm like, how much does it hurt? Like, (laughs) anyway, I would never have had surgery if I thought there was any risk to sexual function. Never. That is not a risk that I ever would have taken. And I think people assume that I knowingly took that risk. And I definitely did not. One thing very disturbing is in 2018, I passed out flyers at the ACOG annual meeting, the annual meeting for the American College of OBGYNs. And on the front of my flyers, it said, help improve OBGYN education and clitoral anatomy. And I went through how the nerves in the clitoris were missing from OBGYN literature. They were missing from textbooks and they weren't in OBGYN journals. And, you know, I said, this indicates that OBGYNs don't know this anatomy and they should, because, you know, here's how it affects patients. And so that was on one side. And on the other side, I think it's a 77%. I think I actually, that was a typo. So there was this survey study of OBGYNs that found 78% of OBGYNs would offer labiaplasty to a patient they thought had hypertrophy. And 45% of the OBGYNs who responded to this survey were pediatric OBGYNs. 
So what that means is a lot of the pediatric OBGYNs are saying that they would offer labiaplasty. And they didn't clarify whether offer labiaplasty meant refer to somebody else or do it yourself. But I think a lot of OBGYNs are doing these without training. And I was happy. There was one OBGYN I talked to at the ACOG annual meeting and she said, yeah, everybody is doing these and I know they're not trained. And this was 2018. And definitely back in the day, like in 2010, I talked to a plastic surgeon about a repair. And that plastic surgeon, he's the top expert in labiaplasty in the world. And he has published in the aesthetic surgery journal, which is basically the top cosmetic surgery journal in the world, that there is no evidence the labia minora play a role in sexual function. Oh my God. That is not true. And so the fact that this is the information patients are getting is so problematic. And so he's the top expert in labiaplasty in the world. And I was talking to him and I was trying to figure out whether having new labia minora made could help my function. You know, I was just trying to come up with anything. I didn't know what I was doing. Okay. But I actually do think that the labia minora do play a role in facilitating stimulation of the clitoris. And nobody ever really talks about that, even though that was actually Masters and Johnson's explanation for how women had orgasms from penetration alone. Their explanation was that it's indirect clitoral stimulation caused by basically tension on the labia minora. Except recently I talked to a woman who her vulva got damaged in childbirth and she's actually super smart. It's funny because I think she's like an esthetician. No, she like waxes women for a living. So I think she makes her very comfortable with vulvas, but like her understanding of all this and her insight is so good. But anyway, she talks about, she was telling me like how, yeah, the way that things pull, it definitely causes the clitoris to be simulated. She said, and this is also how women can do kegels and they can kegel themselves to an orgasm. It's because of how the vulva and the clitoris move. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you're right. So basically there's a lot of belief that the labia minora don't have any function. Before my surgery, I did ask my doctor, I said, what do the labia minora do? Like, what are they for? And he just shrugged. He had no answer for me. And so if I thought, you know, they had some important purpose, I would have been a little bit more worried. Yeah. And I've seen there's one OBGYN who has a, you know, she specializes in female genital cosmetic surgery in Houston. She wrote this paper where she said she didn't know where anyone got the idea that the labia minora play a role in sexual function. She said she didn't know where, like, that's preposterous. She didn't know where anyone got that idea. It's obviously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> she also said that doctors should not use the terms labia minor and vulva because they might confuse patients. She also said her patients are obviously savvy enough to know what normal vulvas look like and they can make their own decisions. So it's like, okay, okay. You think that your patients are so ignorant. They don't know basic anatomical terms, but they're definitely educated enough to know what was look like. And there's no need to like make sure that they know. And their experience with having a vulva and a vagina and having sex would probably also tell them that there is some stimulation. There is some pleasure to be had with even touching the labia minora in an intimate way. Yeah. So part of the problem is I think that I've talked to other women who said this as well, who had the same experience. It's like, okay, so we have this knowledge of our own bodies, but when we are told by an authority that we're wrong, it gets hard to believe ourselves. Absolutely it does. It happens all over the birth world. 
So like I was a teenager, like I'm like 17 when I would get touched down there or whatever. Obviously I had a lot of sensations and I couldn't even find my clitoris. So I only had like a vague idea of like you touch that area and the whole area is like tingly, you know, and it was more like my understanding of what was going on was very sort of diffuse. Like instead of focused on like one point, it was like everything and so when I got online and I read doctors say labium nor don't play a role in sexual function, I was confused, but I also didn't trust myself enough to say I'm right and the doctor is wrong. That level of audacity came later. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> like nowadays people are like, how dare you say the doctors are wrong? I'm like, but they are. Like, I do know better than most doctors, you know, like I say that. And then people accuse me of being a narcissist. And I'm like, I'm just correct. But at 17, I had no ability. You know, if I saw the experts say something, I went with that over my own knowledge of my own body, my own experience. Yeah. You know, one thing that's coming up for me is that OBGYNs don't like talking about sex, even though we're dealing with the consequence of sex, whether it be STIs or babies or whatever, you know, like this is our domain. HPV, I mean, like all these other topics, but I'm not exactly sure why medicine has become so devoid. Like if any taboo subject can be unpacked, it should be through the lens of our medical scientists. I'm using air quotes here. So why aren't OBGYNs more interested in the physiology and the anatomy of sexual pleasure? You know, instead we pass out lubes and things. It's like dawning on me that if you need lube for many people, unless there's like some absolute reason that lubrication is needed, most women are going to have natural lubrication. If, as my wife always tells me, sex is the consequence of intimacy. Exactly. Yeah. The goal is not let's stick a penis in the vagina. The goal is let's get so revved up that naturally the consequences that we're going to be connecting with my penis inside of you. So it's almost like the conversation we are so far behind in the OBGYN and the medical community. We're not even willing to go there and talk about sexual pleasure or arousal. Instead, we just say, oh, you know, use some lube or, oh, it's in your head. Actually, can you elaborate on what they told you about whenever you said, I can't feel anything up in this area? And they kind of gaslighted you. What did they actually say about, you just need to find the right person and all that? They said my surgery could not have affected my sexual function they told me to see a sex therapist. They told me I probably just needed to relax. And one OBGYN said, I just needed to fall in love. But you still had a drive. You were just saying something's not anatomically, right? So my sex drive actually got much higher once I figured out how to still have an orgasm with a vibrator. So one thing that I find very frustrating about how medicine approaches female sexual dysfunction is they act like stimulation and desire are separate, right? So they always say that the most common female sexual dysfunction is desire disorder. And I think this is the biggest crock of shit. You know what I mean? There is actually one doctor who agrees with me. Her name is Dr. Teresa Wood. She's on Instagram. She talks about how a lot of the time, like if women come in and they don't have sexual desire, it's literally because they're not having good sex. They don't want sex if it's not pleasurable the solution to improving desire is just to make sex more desirable. Like it's a feedback. Right, 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 right. You know, like pretty obvious. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess some sex drive is 
like intrinsic, I guess, a function of hormones or whatever. And then some of it comes from that feedback, right? So I still had it even when I wasn't getting as much feedback, but not as much as, you know, once I figured out how to use a vibrator. But like for me, I mean, TMI, but I have so little sensation. It's not, it's more like- I I think we're past TMI here, Jessica. (laughs) I have like an engineering brain. My degree is in biomedical engineering. So when it came to figuring out how to have an orgasm, despite what happened to me, it was like, I'm going to engineer this shit. You know what I mean? It was like, kind of like not accepting no for an answer. And I try to tell other women who have been harmed this because there is a tendency to sort of give up. And what I will say to anyone who has lost sensation for whatever reason, be it in childbirth or anything, or, you know, there are a lot of women out there that we tend to forget about who were operated on as infants with these intersex surgeries. And like, they don't have normal sensation at all. Right. And I guess what I try to tell people, anyone who might find themselves in a similar position that I have been in is like, if something doesn't work, just keep trying, just keep trying. You know what I mean? Like, so that might mean like trying like 20 vibrators, you know, it might mean like, you know, just just keep trying because I mean, that's kind of how I approached it. All I was saying is like, things have changed for me as far as my ability to connect with partners, you know, my desire for sex, just everything. It affects so much. And it's crazy how people disconnect sexual pleasure from reproduction when it comes to females. And like, you see this on so many levels, like not just in medicine. I saw it in Sapiens, that book Sapiens yeah, by Yuval Harari. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He spent a whole paragraph talking about how males would not bother to reproduce unless it was pleasurable for them. But there tends to be an assumption that female sexual pleasure has not been evolutionarily relevant. There's this woman who wrote a whole book arguing that the clitoris is vestigial, right? Yeah, that word vestigial, yeah. For people who don't know the word, it basically means it's a relic. It's a remnant from some leftover previously useful organ or something. That is just a byproduct of the fact that males need to have pleasure. Like people argue that female orgasm serves no function, but like literally oxytocin levels more than double when women orgasm during sex and they don't change much at all when women don't. And oxytocin is the bonding hormone. And this is so obvious. And if you, like for women who have suffered damage, the connection is obvious, right? For women who know like the before and after, you know, and I actually don't know it as well, but actually with me, you know, anyway, I feel like being able to have workarounds help me. But like, there's one woman who contacted me recently and she said, I feel like I can't bond anymore, right? And another woman who lost clitoral sensation in childbirth, she said, yeah, it makes it hard for her to want to have penetrative sex. People separate clitoral stimulation from penetrative sex. And I've noticed that sometimes like women get mad at me for saying the clitoris is reproductive. They're like, why can't pleasure be good enough on its own? Because it doesn't select for pleasure. Pleasure isn't like the end point. The goal is not for us to have a good time. Like, you know what I mean? That's not the goal of evolution. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's an important question. And you actually highlighted this on maybe on TikTok or Instagram, but the role of oxytocin in sperm motility, right? Oh yeah. That too. That's an awesome yeah. study. I checked it out. And yeah. There were a couple studies I found. And what was crazy is they never said orgasm. 
One of the papers said oxytocin from vaginal stimulation during penetration. And I was like, bro, we're not even talking about the vagina here. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is where we all go. You immediately go to vagina, cervix, uterus, tubes, ovaries. What about the vulva and the clitoris? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I hear you speak about these things, it makes so much sense, but it's also very confronting, I think, for OBGYNs to have to acknowledge that there's this whole body of, I don't know, even just conversation that could be had that would improve the care of their patients. If you want this to be your domain, you should know your domain through and through. We should be listening to people like you in order to adjust our practices or maybe not offering a procedure we're not trained to do. We're not trained to do them. Speaking of, so what I was trying to say earlier when I talked about passing out flyers at the ACOG annual meeting was on the other side of the flyer. So on one side, it said, you know, help get clitoral anatomy taught, basically. And then on the other side, it said 77% of OBGYNs, but actually the paper says 78. And I think it was a misquote, but it's like 1%. Who cares? So, so 78% of OBGYNs said that they would offer labiaplasty. And then I said, why doesn't ACOG offer CME for these? So you said that labiaplasty was covered in your residency, but you were just recently a resident, right? Five years ago. Yeah, but it wasn't really covered. I mean, to say it's covered gets into the conversation around board certification. If you're getting privileges to do a procedure that you've seen a couple times, that's not really being trained to do it because to train to do it would require us to understand the nervous supply, arterial venous supply, the entire anatomy of that. And everything we've already talked about is, it's clear that people don't appreciate it because it's taboo to get into the organs of sexual pleasure. Even just that exposure that you had, I guarantee you that's way more than my surgeon ever had, right? Yeah, you might be right. More than most do. That surgeon in Houston, I told you about that paper she wrote, she also talked about dodging bullets with her first dozen or so patients. What happens is surgeons start doing these because they think it looks easy. There was one OBGYN who called my dad one time asking if he does labiaplasties. And after he told her he doesn't, she said, well, do you think I could just do it? It looks easy. That's how they start doing it. There was an OBGYN that reached out to him? Yeah. Oh, wow. And he was like, please don't. But that's how they start doing these. They think that it's just extra skin. If you look at, for example, Baggish Atlas of Pelvic Anatomy and Gynecologic Surgery, when it describes how to do a labiaplasty, it calls the quote unquote, excess labium or excess skin. And in the diagram showing you how to do it, it pretty much shows, I mean, I would say it shows how to re completely remove the labium aura. It doesn't say make sure you leave at least a centimeter, right? Or two even, because realistically, if you're actually just doing a labiaplasty for medical reasons, why would you not be able to leave two centimeters? Because that's like a normal size. Like that was the average, 2.18 was the average found in one study. So what is the need for teeny tiny labia minora if we're really talking about medical labioplasty? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that's crazy. And that's what, like a long time ago, I wrote this paper where I tried to explain all the reasons why what happened to me happened. And at one point I said, my surgeon had to have a surgical goal of labia minora smaller than his margin of error. So is he really such an incompetent surgeon that he fucked up by two centimeters? Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah, I mean? Right. Or was he trying to make my labium unreasonably small and he also made a technical error, right? So it's both. And if you really can't control yourself by two centimeters, 
then, then like, it might be time to retire you know, your scalpel, I'd say. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, that's just crazy to think about. So on my flyers, I said that ACOG should offer continuing medical education. And that guy I mentioned earlier, Dr. Michael Goodman, he told me he had tried to get ACOG to offer continuing medical education and that they had refused. And they refused because they don't want to be associated with these procedures because they're taboo. So like taboo is affecting this on all different levels. Like taboo is preventing anatomy from being taught. It's causing all the stigma. It's making women vulnerable to negative messaging. And it's also preventing professional medical organizations from establishing training standards and from dictating that anatomy be taught. Yeah. It should force us to consider where do these taboos come from, you know? And if you go back several hundred centuries, you know, a woman's sexuality, like a witch's power during the witch trials, it was derived from her sexuality. Like the idea was that she had made a compact with the devil, providing him with sex and receiving magical powers in return. That was like actually what was being promoted by the church and the state and the Malleus Maleficarum, which was the witch hunter's Bible. And I think that those taboos, we're still grappling with them in modern medicine, which is kind of aghast. But if OBGYNs want to step up to the plate, we have so many resources and so much power to just say, hey, we need to change something about how we practice. And I, for some reason, they're just not willing to confront it with the taboo. The hardest thing for me was, you know, it was traumatic, but it became a lot more traumatic when I read the medical literature and I realized that the entire medical community was complicit in what happened to me. And what I felt was that the entire medical community did not think that what happened to me was worth preventing, that it was just an acceptable thing to let happen. And that is what drives a lot of my advocacy because that sort of made me feel worthless, that I had something taken from me and that it was supposed to mean nothing and it was supposed to not matter. And when I passed out flyers at the ACOG annual meeting saying that there should be continuing medical education because it's not covered in residency, and I think for a lot of doctors, it's covered even less than it was covered for you. And at the time, in 2018, the only vulvar surgery listed in ACGME's like list of surgeries covered in OBGYN residency was radical vulvectomy. And there were no minimum procedure numbers for that. So what one urogynecologist I went to told me is that could mean just observing. So like the fact that you got to observe a labiaplasty, that sort of coverage, I think is enough to cross stuff off the list. And then you're considered eligible for privileges for that long list of things. And let's talk about that super, I'll try to keep it brief because yeah, there is a big issue here within the hospital privileging system is, hey, I've done this many procedures and they say, great, go do it. That means you can start practicing tomorrow. If you were lying, if it's just not, you have your program director sign off or whatever, if you just saw five of them, that may be all that they require in order to give you privileges to do that. But even in residency training, there is a bare minimum list of things that you're supposed to have done and seen before you can even graduate from residency. And some of the procedures, like an open hysterectomy, you still have to do like 25 of them. But how many women are getting open, big, giant incisions for hysterectomy nowadays? So instead, we just look and we pop in and we scrub in and maybe touch a couple things. And then we say, oh, I was a part of that procedure. That's actually what we do because we need to meet the bare minimum. Now, the problem with that is, is that if a person does need an emergency open hysterectomy, we may have seen them, 
but we may need to call in some support from an older attending to help us even after we have privileges to do it on our own. The labiaplasty thing is not something that any resident, I'm sure, you know, they might see it from afar. Are they even touching the tissue? Are they even like drawing the line? Are they experiencing what it might be like to scalpel tissue under tension? And it's just simply not something we're trained to do. So we can't be offering something that we don't know how to do. That's like a violation of bioethics. I mean, it's not even fraud. It's like immoral. It's unethical. Like this is not something you should be doing to somebody just because it looks easy on TV or whatever. One thing I wanted to do was try and get privileges changed. The surgery center I went to is managed by this company, USPI. They're the biggest ambulatory care provider in the U.S., And my dad knew someone on the board, so I got in touch with them. And I tried to convince them to change their privileging nationwide to require training in labiaplasty before surgeons can get privileges to do labiaplasty. And it didn't work. So I went back and forth with them, and they actually considered changing them nationwide, even though that's not normally how they do it. Because normally, the way that it works is each surgery center decides on how they do their privileges separately. And I convinced them it shouldn't be that way because it's an elective surgery. So it should just be the same at every surgery center around the country that they manage. And so then they agreed with that. And that was a big step that I convinced them of. But then what happened was they reached out to ACGME, the Accreditation Council of Graduate Medical Education. And they reached out to the American Board of OBGYN. And they told them that board certified OBGYN should be able to do labiaplasties. So my understanding is they're giving privileges to do these surgeries just based on residency training and board certification. Man, I could talk to you for hours. This is super interesting. I think people are going to really dig this conversation because it gets into a lot of the weeds of what I think is actually a problem that is crippling advancement in the way that we provide care to women. So I really appreciate you being so candid in this conversation. I really believe in your advocacy I don't do these procedures because I don't feel like I have adequate training, even if I was still working in the hospital system. But that is me. I can't say that anybody out there wouldn't want to try to be a hero and do a procedure that they read about on the Atlas of, you know, the Bagish's Atlas or whatever. Yeah. And it's not just being a hero. They make a lot of money on these. Yeah. That's the biggest motivation. Right. Right. But just one thing that I meant to say, back to the flyers, the ACOG annual meeting, when I was going around suggesting that there should be some kind of continuing medical education. There should be formal training available to OBGYNs. The answers that I got was women just shouldn't be getting those surgeries, right? So victim blaming. And I said, but these are approved by ACOG where medically necessary, right? And I think actually in the latest committee opinion, they don't disapprove of cosmetic surgery anymore, right? So these surgeries are approved of they are approved of by ACOG for medical reasons, even in women under 18. And yet the answer to, hey, maybe doctors should be trained is women just shouldn't be getting those surgeries. There is so much victim blame. One of the OBGYNs who told me that my surgery could not have affected my sexual function later told me when I said, hey, this did affect my sexual function. Here's how you know, please like be better informed, right? She told me I should have known. So on one hand, she told me it couldn't have happened. And then later I was somehow supposed to know that what she thought couldn't have happened could have happened. Like what? So you're damned if you do damned if you don't. Yeah. And also 
Yeah. So there was the one woman who said women just shouldn't be getting those sort of actually a couple and it was women. It was mostly women I was talking to. So when I was on the daily show, they made it look like I was talking to men, but back then I was actually kind of uncomfortable talking to men. Right. Cause on my flyer, it said that my vulva had been fucked up. Like yeah. I was mainly approaching young women because that's why I thought I would have the best chance with. And they said, Women just shouldn't be getting those surgeries. And so one way I confronted that is I said, well, what about women who need these? And I said, ACOG does approve them for medical reasons. And the answer to that was they have more important things to worry about. (laughs) So there's this attitude that sexual function is just not that important. And this has actually come up a lot, like on Reddit. It's disturbing how alleged doctors on Reddit. I don't know if they're real doctors, but there are people calling themselves doctors on Reddit. The way that they responded to me was like horrifying. There's a thing in medicine where they really don't like someone without medical training telling them they don't know something. And so they use like authority to try and say, well, we're the doctors. You don't know what you're talking about. And once it's established that I do know what I'm talking about, then the answer is, well, that's not important. And it's like, nobody died because their clitoris didn't work. And it's like, what? Actually, it's very common for women to attempt suicide. Like just the other day, I got contacted by a woman who was literally in the ER because she tried to kill herself or probably not in the ER anymore. But they're like, she was like contacting me from the hospital. I mean, I was suicidal at one point. So this is actually extremely, extremely important for female quality of life. And it's not getting treated like that. And it's also like there is an unrecognized burden, I think, on the healthcare system when the stuff gets fucked up because those ER visits are expensive. I mean, one lady, she didn't attempt suicide, but she checked herself in to a mental hospital. And she also followed up with like seven different doctors at the Cleveland Clinic, you know, after she was harmed in a biopsy. And it's like, why not just prevent that? Because that's expensive. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's so easy to prevent. It's like, you know, people just need to know like basic, basic anatomy to prevent these things. But yeah, there's just this sort of attitude. It was really hard for me to take, like passing out these flyers and just kind of getting rebuffed over and over. Like, yeah, I mean, in my opinion, like before you do a surgery, you should be trained in that surgery. You should know the anatomy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty straightforward. Yeah, that's all I was trying to ask for. And on my flyer, I had my story. And one OBGYN said, nobody cares about your story. Or she said, nobody's going to care what happened to you. She said, you should take that out. What the (laughs) fuck? Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't we care about somebody's story? You're here to care for a person as another person. Yeah, that was really weird. I don't know. It's a weird fucking thing to say to somebody. So what happened was I sort of like decided to crash the ACOG annual meeting at the last minute. And I think I drove up on Friday night and, you know, I went to like, FedEx or somewhere. And I had all these flyers printed out. And then I, I don't know what I was doing. I was like on Tinder. I like matched with this cute, like documentary filmmaker. It was funny. Cause he commented on one of my posts. Like he was like, I remember that. It was funny. <laughs> I had him come with me. So I was like, I need moral support. Do you want to come? <laughs> like, so my idea was to catch OBGYNs at bars and be like, Hey, you want to talk about the clitoris? Like, I thought that would be a good idea. Did you have like your model? Your model with you and everything? I didn't have a model at that point. I just had the flyers because I got there pretty late at night. And I was like, well, no point in just going to the hotel and like doing nothing. Might as well like go 
find the OBGYNs, like maybe they'll be loosening up a bit. You know what I mean? OBGYNs don't have fun. That was your first mistake. <laughs> yeah. So I went out to a couple of women there about my age at a bar and I said, Hey, are you here for the, you know, ACOG annual meeting? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, Oh, so I have these flyers that I was going to pass out tomorrow. And I just want to ask your opinion on them. So that was a context. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a pretty charming way to engage them. Yeah. So one of them was pretty silent. The other one, her opinion was that my story didn't matter. And then she just left my flyers on the table. She didn't even take them. So it was like really demoralizing. And your I was like, story why did they doesn't matter. And then she said, and don't dress like that. And I'm like, I'm obviously not going to dress. I didn't say anything, but I was like, thanks for that advice. It was like, I was literally at a bar and I was wearing like silk shorts and a not revealing tank top, like not even low and just sleeveless basically. And a blazer. You would have fit right in it at a conference. Yeah. It's at least it sounds like it. <laughs> I mean, it was like, well, my shorts were like a little short for a conference, but yeah, the, the top of my outfit could have been totally appropriate. Yeah. And also this was at a bar at night. She yeah, was like, make sure you not... don't dress like that. And it was like, so I think what it is, there is this thing where some doctors, they have this ego. And I think it comes from how doctors sacrifice so much. They work so hard to get trained to be doctors. Yeah. And then they have to justify that it's worth it. And they want commensurate respect and status with the effort that they put in. And so then if someone who hasn't gone through that gauntlet comes up to them and says, hey, here's something that you don't know, or here's something about your field that should change, it triggers something in them, causes them to react very badly. And I think this is something that is problematic about medical culture. And the reason why I think it's problematic is because I think it's a threat to patient safety. This behavior where there's so much ego and unwillingness to recognize where there might be a problem, where maybe it would be a good idea to listen to someone, even if they're not a doctor. And the funny thing is I've talked to, you know, like I've talked to engineers who work in like healthcare technology and PhDs who work in like stuff to do with pharmaceuticals. Like there was, I forget details, but I just know there was this one guy who was doing research on drugs to help with Alzheimer's and he has a PhD and something related to that. And he said, yeah, Doctors are notorious for not listening to people who are not doctors. And I think it's actually a problem, especially as medicine becomes more and more multidisciplinary. Because it's just funny because like so many things that can improve medicine involve using technology. And one thing that I observed was that technology was underused in medicine, at least in my opinion. And I feel like that might be why. Technology is underutilized in medicine. What do you mean by that? I feel like we are way too much tied into computer screens than actually sitting with a person and getting to know them. Well, I guess I developed this opinion over a decade ago. So there is that. <laughs> this was my opinion before electronic medical records. So actually, when it comes to electronic medical records, for example, you have non-doctors creating these systems without consulting with doctors enough or without caring. I don't know too much about it, but I know that my dad complains about it. And I think that there may be some like misaligned, like incentives are not actually what help doctor 
treat the patient better or, you know, things like that. I'm not really sure what's going on with those, but that actually might be an example of people not listening to doctors enough. Oh, that's without a doubt. I think that doctors are very confronted by even a nurse saying, doctor, I think your patient's short of breath or whatever. Oh, they're fine. Give them some oxygen or whatever. Like, and meanwhile, they've got a big PEA and they die later, PE, because they just didn't stop and listen to the nurse who's actually with them at bedside. So for sure, doctors don't like being told what to do. They don't like having to admit that they were wrong. They don't like saying, hey, we should have probably been doing things better. And that is why I'm here with this podcast, doing all the advocacy work I'm doing in order to not burn the system down, but to create a life raft for people who are really not finding what they need in the medical system for a variety of reasons, which we won't get into right now. Yeah. I mean, one thing crazy is how there was no recognition. I mean, ACOG still does not recognize the risk of what happened to me in their committee opinion, even though, so I asked them to redo their committee opinion. I said, take out vaginal rejuvenation, first of all, because they were using that as a catch-all term for, you know, just all procedures, including labiaplasty. And I told them, take out the part about hypertrophy being caused by excess androgens. There's no evidence. And I said, add information about risks. And I said, add information about normal labia menor size. And they did not respond to me. They didn't acknowledge me, which is very typical. But then they redid their committee opinion. So I know that I had that impact. Something there, yeah, yeah. And then when they redid it, the most disturbing thing is I have this table and under clitoral hood reduction, it said the goal of clitoral hood reduction is to improve sexual function. And this is just a crazy, like bullshit idea that someone came up with at one point to market these, I guess, to promote clitoral hood reductions. But it's like, this is like saying that circumcision improves male sexual function. I don't think anyone's going to say that. <laughs> I mean, the idea is it makes the clitoral glands more exposed, but it's supposed to be protected by the clitoral hood. You can retract it. Also, there's just no evidence that clitoral hood reduction ever improves sexual function. So it's like, why is that in the ACOG committee opinion? And then in the risk, it says damage to the glands, but like it doesn't recognize the risk of nerve damage, right? So that's not going to help doctors think about like, oh, I need to avoid those nerves. And it's not going to help. That's not correct. The other disturbing thing is in their list of procedures in the table, they have hymenoplasty. I guess it's like intended goal is what it says or something like that. Like what people say it does. So they're not necessarily agreeing, but they're still putting it there. So it says to restore our virginal appearance. Oh my Lord. Yeah. ACOG committee opinion updated, I believe in 2019. Yeah. I found it here. It, it's number 795. Well, I'm going to link everything in the show notes. And then under risk, actually, I don't remember what it says about risk of hymenoplasty, but like hymenoplasty shouldn't be getting done in the US. There's no defense. I think in the United Kingdom, they're trying to make it illegal. Like maybe we should follow in their footsteps. But yeah, what's really fucked up is the Aesthetic Surgery Journal gave an editor's choice award to an article about a new hymenoplasty technique that basically guarantees the chance of bleeding. And the way they guarantee bleeding is they operate on the vagina and the vestibule also. So they don't just sew the hymen back together. They do some funky cut into the vagina and like, it's disturbing. Man, Jessica, we're almost at two hours. How can people find your work? You're all over the social medias. Tell everybody what they need to know. Yeah, I'm 
on Twitter at Mediclit, M-E-D-I-C-L-I-T. And I'm on TikTok at Jessica underscore Ann, A-N-N underscore pin, P-I-N. And that's also my handle on Instagram. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm glad you were able to tell your story again. I know it's probably, you feel like you're repeating yourself, but this is a very unique audience that I have. And I really think it's going to resonate. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. So (laughs) a lot of really great takeaways. This was a wide ranging conversation. It was really hard for me to like keep my mouth shut and just to let it flow because there's so much here. How do we ensure that surgeons are only doing procedures that they're fully competent and capable of? One of Jessica's big platforms, of course, is teaching medical students and surgeons of all sorts about the anatomy and the importance of understanding the innervation, the vascular supply, et cetera, to any tissue that you're operating on. It should go without saying, but it was kind of frightening to me to know that an OBGYN, a very well-regarded OBGYN with all these credentials and accolades would operate in a space and not be willing to counsel them that, hey, I'm not exactly sure if I remove skin here or there that you're going to have full sensation in your clitoris. I mean, that's really scary to think about. So a big part of Jessica's platform is let's retrain people on some of this important anatomy, which, you know, maybe we don't teach it because it's like, it's still so taboo that a woman could possibly be sexual and possibly have a really, really carefully orchestrated sensory pattern as to how sexual stimulation or otherwise is provided to the pelvis. So I think that's a big part of this. I think another big part is that a surgeon should never do a part of a procedure that wasn't consented in the first place. And that's why I think Jessica was so compelled to bring sort of a lawsuit into this, which is a very expensive process that not a lot of people can afford. But this is something that can't be reversed. I mean, what a thing to have to sit with. And and so I'm, I'm very, very grateful that Jessica has done the work she has. I'm sure she's read more about the clitoris than virtually anybody, certainly more than me. But she has really sparked my interest about quite a few things here. We're going to link all of the information for how to reach Jessica. She's very easy to find on Instagram, TikTok, and I'm sure she'd love to hear from you if anything here resonates. Another really important thing is that there's no ideal appearance to the vulva. In fact, when they did surveys on some of the large porn websites, they found that when they did like a poll as to who has the most beautiful vulva in porn, the winner has labia minora that are actually protruding beyond the labia majora. So if that is the notion that you have, for whatever reason, it's not your fault. If our culture and society has given you the sense that there's an ideal appearance of your external genitalia, let's wipe that away. Because I don't think we have any conclusion on that. Not that it really matters, or not that that would be a reason that you should feel compelled to change your body irreparably. So there's so many little gems that came from this interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Please support our sponsors by Optimizers, magbreakthrough.com slash holisticobijuane. Try their magnesium breakthrough. It'll help you get the most restful sleep you've ever experienced. I assure you of that. For a short period of time through that website, you're going to get a discount um, of goodies for free on by Optimizers pertaining to optimizing your gut health. And that includes Masszymes, it includes P3OM, and it includes HCL Breakthrough all three of which are really, really important for optimizing your gut health, which is actually connected to your sleep. And your sleep is connected to your gut health because there's so much going on in the gut. It's a whole separate nervous system. So definitely check out Bioptimizer, save some money, and support the people that make this show financially feasible. The other sponsor, of course, is Organifi. I love their vanilla protein powder. Just one big scoop, 20 grams, all plant-based, has some digestive enzymes. It tastes delicious. 
all of that into your cup. You shake it up after your workout. You're going to be able to go on with your day, supplying your body, your muscles, your connective tissue with all the nutrients it needs to recover and build back stronger without the bloating and everything else due to the addition of those digestive enzymes. So go to Organifi.com slash beloved. Try any of their products at a discount on me. I know you're not going to regret it. These two companies are very, very much in alignment with what I do, and, and I am so grateful to be working with them. My next episode of the podcast is with Sandra Alvarez. She's a filmmaker. She wrote a film called Inhospitable, which is all about one specific war between hospital systems in my hometown of Pittsburgh. It's between UPMC and Highmark, and how UPMC, in its efforts to monopolize the region, which is not just Pittsburgh, it's a very, very large region that UPMC serves. They're trying to monopolize it at the cost of access to healthcare for people, especially in the Pittsburgh region. A lot of them have been seeing the same oncologist for years, and now, bam, UPMC has decided we're not going to accept you unless you have our insurance. And of course, if you're the insurer, and if you're the payer and you're the provider, right, the insurance company paying for physician services, for example, then you can control the costs. And this is driving up healthcare in very, very unusual ways. We get into sort of abomination that is nonprofit hospitals paying their CEOs and their higher level execs millions of dollars per year, while a school across the street is rat infested and can't even afford new desks. And this is a nonprofit. They're supposed to be serving the community. They're not paying any taxes. So what in the actual fuck is going on here? This is an awesome episode. I saw the film and I reached out to Sandra and was like, can we talk about this on the show? Because this is, I think, a part of the conversation that we're missing. We're always bashing the politicians and bashing the pharmaceutical companies and their representatives and all these lobbying groups. And yeah, we should bash them. But what about the hospitals themselves driving up costs? This is really, really, really important stuff to talk about. So I know you're going to love that episode. If you want to find me, go to belovedholistics.com. Nothing on this show is medical advice. It's all informational. But if you do want medical advice, you can find me there. I do one-off consultations once you join my private association. I do packages and you save a bunch of money by buying a number of hours with me instead of just one. Because if it took you 10 years to develop an issue, it's going to take at least several months in order to get you on the right path. So you can find all of that there. Once you join the PCA, you can also join my collaborator program. I've got dozens now of midwives and coaches around the country who have an MD consultant on their care team in order to look through labs, order imaging, help to sort out medication conflicts, to really provide the allopathic lens in order for you to best counsel and optimize the care of your clients. So you can find all of that at belovedholistics.com. Apart from supporting the sponsors, which really just demonstrates to them that there's an audience here that cares about their health and wants to invest their money into health-giving products as opposed to just alcohol, booze, and fast food. I like to think that that's my audience, the, the former, not the latter. You, so support them, but you can also support the podcast by sharing with your friends episodes that you love, put it in your newsletters, really get the word out. We're trying to create a community here around a completely new way of approaching women's health. If you're called, it takes 15 seconds to go onto your smartphone, go to iTunes, go to Spotify, leave a five-star review. The algorithms only care about how many five-star reviews you have. So it feels like I'm just begging for pittance over here, and I guess I am, but it just it's such an easy way to support us. So if you've already done any of those things, thank you so much. Continue tuning in, and I will see you very shortly in a week for the next episode with Sandra Alvarez. That'll be episode 90 here on the Holistic OBGYN podcast. I'll see you then, guys.
ったんだ。